Hello fellow time travelers. While editing this episode, I received the sad news that Philip Bond, the father of actress Samantha Bond, died on January 17th at the age of 82. He played Ganatus in the televised version of the Daleks, the Thal who falls in love with Barbara, and has the infamous line about ladies first, which we poke fun at in this episode. It seems only right that we should dedicate this episode to him. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the gargantuan task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we again have our three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books, and that would be Danny Celadon. Hello, Danny. Hello. And finally, the novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and previously read none of the books except for one. The always lovely Sheena Anna Para. Hello, Hello. Sheena. Alrighty. Today, we're looking at the first published novelization of the second Doctor Who story and the first to feature the Daleks. Ooh. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, written by David Whitaker and adapted from the story written by Terry Nation that aired from 12-21-63 to 2-1-64. Published by Frederick Mueller in 1964, reprinted by Target Books in 1973. As of this recording in January of 2017, this title is currently in print as a republication by Random House UK and is also available as an audiobook by BBC Audio, 150 pages. Alright, so before we get started, a couple of things to tell you about. David Whitaker. I love David Whitaker. I adore David Whitaker, and not just because of this book. Uh, he was born in 1928, and he has a lot in common with Terence Dix, who wrote the first book, in that they were both story editors on Doctor Who. However, Whitaker was the first story editor on Doctor Who, meaning that he actually oversaw edits on Terry Nation's original teleplay for this story, though obviously not for length because episode six, you feel like you just want to chew your ankle off to escape from it. It really is the most dull 25 minutes ever to sit through. In that sense, he seems to know the four main characters far better than Dix does or even Terry Nation does. He did four scripts for the series, including Edge of Destruction, which we will be looking at next time on this program. He went on to do a novelization of his own story, The Crusades, the year after he did this one, and before his death from cancer in 1980, was starting to novelize his Patrick Troughton story, Enemy of the World. Now, as for Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, because that actually is what it's called, I have here in the studio, actually it's uh, Sheena's dining room, so we'll just call it the studio. Uh, because we're all here together, I'm actually able to show them something that I will show you listeners by taking a photo of it and bringing it onto the Facebook page, which I'll give you the address for at the end of the program. This is actually a first edition of the first novelization. This is the first of three novels published by Frederick Mueller Limited in late 1964 at the height of Dalek mania in Britain. 
Dalek Mania was probably the biggest reason they skipped that first story and went straight to the second one, because who cared about cavemen when you could have Daleks? I mean, seriously, come on. That sold in hardback for 12 shillings, 6 pence, and I, I'm trying to remember what that is in 2017 dollars, and I can't remember. I actually did the calculation I forgot to bring it with me. <laughs> Lovely. And it was so successful, in fact, that there was the, this first printing of 20,000 copies sold out. <clears throat> and they had to do a second one, which you can recognize as being the second edition, because instead of having this shocking pink cover, it has this kind of greenish-gray one, which isn't nearly as impressive. I used to have that one, too, but eh, I don't anymore. Two other books were published within that year, The Crusades and The Zarbi, which we'll soon be discussing. There was even an American edition of this book published in 1967 by Avon Books, probably to tie in with the movie version with Peter Cushing. Images of all these are going to be on the Facebook page, including that Avon Books edition. And in 1973, W.H. Allen decided to launch the Doctor Who line under its Target imprint by buying the re reprint rights to those three books, which is why they still include the illustrations. And that's something you're going to notice about the uh, Doctor Who books. If you do them in publication order, they have illustrations. They're very much kids' books. Obviously, the reprints were a success, as they hired Terrence Dix to adapt Spearhead from Space as the Auton Invasion that same year, and the rest is history. Alright, overall, first impressions. Sheena, let's start with you. Well, it's totally different than the first book that's really the first book, but isn't. Right. Um, <laughs> the characters come into play totally different. They kind of have the same jobs, mm -hmm. sort of. Right. But um, it's a totally different in on both books. So it was kind of like, I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to read the same thing over again. And it totally wasn't it. So I was yeah. kind of happy with that. So, How, did, Which version did you prefer of the um, I kind of liked the version where they were both teachers, sort mm. of, and that they knew each other. But I guess in the second book, it, it plays on their kind of like love interest that they yeah. didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. So that's what I liked about the second book. Yeah, I, I I was glad that I didn't have to read the same thing twice. That was definitely uh, yeah. a very good thing to not have to do. I was kind of worried about that, too, because mainly this, these two books tend to confuse people. Yeah, they do, especially with the characters, too. Mm -hmm. They're totally confusing. Yeah. Like, Susan in the first book is, like, this intellect, you know, this space alien who knows everything. In this book, she's just, like, a normal girl who doesn't know where... Paris is or whatever. <laughs> so, it's like, exactly. so it was like two totally different characters, which is really cool because it gives you a whole nother, now I can just kind of let that last one go mm -hmm. and just move forward. Okay. Sort of. Danny, what did you think of the difference? Yeah, I, I thought there was a huge difference in, in the tone of both the books. Um, this one seemed a lot more action-oriented, which was kind of nice considering... The way the way that the action was was uh, presented. I agree. Okay, yeah. and also we have a very unusual thing for the Target books. It's a first person point of view. That is incredibly rare in the entire range. It honestly doesn't happen much at all. In fact, the only other author that really makes extensive use in first person of uh, first person is Donald Cotton. And he gives us uh, stories from multiple viewpoints. Uh, for instance, there's a book coming up where we hear the entire book from the viewpoint of the poet Homer, because it's about the Odyssey. 
and a gunfighter from the Old West, and those are Hartnell stories, by the way, so we may actually get to those. What do you think of the first-person point of view overall, Danny? I, I, I liked it because it, it gave you the opportunity to get into the character's headspace instead of having having a more dispassionate view. Uh, the, the first book kind of kind of did that, where you didn't really know what the motives of the characters were, but in in this case, you got all the motives from uh, from Ian's point of view, and you you get to you get to see the gears turning in his head, and you kind of sort of get what the other characters are thinking as well, but only as intuitions on his part. Right, and there's a lot that he doesn't see, but that the uh, readers see. There's right. a huge amount of dramatic irony in this uh, in this book where. The reader sees something that a main character in the book does not see, which allows you to say, oh, I know something you don't. And in this case, it's the love story because he's completely blind to that sort of thing. Sheena, what did you think overall of the first Um, person? The first person, I liked it. Um, I think it added more dramatics to the story itself um, just because he was from another planet going to another planet first time. Um, I think that if you were to have more than one character doing that and they hadn't been on this, you know, first mission, it would have been too confusing. There would have been, you would have been like, who's saying this or whatever, but it wasn't like that. Hmm. So that, that's what I liked about that. And at first it didn't really feel like it was just in his, you know what I mean? Like just because you can like kind of tell what other characters were thinking. Mm -hmm. So it didn't always feel like it was only first person. Like this is only my perspective of... You know, the doctor, or my perspective of Susan, you know, like there was other kind of like tidbits of things that weren't from any perspective. They were just there. Yeah. Which exactly. was good, which yeah. I liked. So and it wasn't always like, like my mind says this. It right. was, it was all, it was all cohesive together rather than just one perspective mm-hmm. in general. And in fact, I think that's a good sign of how good a writer David Whitaker is that yeah. he's able to keep the first person point of view and yet have Ian be just observant enough that he can read people's expressions and kind of have a sense of what's going on. Yeah. Because you know that the doctor is going to trick them, for instance, even before he does it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's so obvious, so blatant in the televised version because it just happens and everybody thinks, oh, he must have done this and he doesn't exactly play it off as if he's an innocent. Here... Ian kind of sees it coming and is, you know, it, it's good that uh, Whitaker's able to do that sort of thing. I do have a question in-universe. Is this an alternate timeline? Or is this how Ian tells the story to someone in the future who actually isn't there? Is is the reason we're getting the story from Ian's perspective? Oh. Is the Daleks an alternative version of what happened in the quote-unquote real world, in the Doctor Who Prime universe, for instance? Mm-hmm. Or is this Ian telling the story to somebody else later on, but they weren't actually there, so he's, you know, I went on a job interview as a chemist, even though I didn't get it, and I did all these heroic things, which he actually did do, Mm -hmm. but it still makes him look, you know, better. Yeah. Sometimes not better. I would say the first version, probably, because I didn't see it, like, I think if you were saying something, most people... When they're talking about themselves, they make themselves seem a lot better. Right. And I didn't get that he was being boisterous about anything he did. He was just being courageous in a lot of the efforts he made. (laughs) Just because he didn't want everyone to die or he knew the Daleks were like 
total jerks. So he just like so he was just doing what he had to do to like get on to the next place, hopefully home. But the Daleks are total jerks. I've never heard them described that way before. But yeah, that kind of encapsulates them no. entirely. Yeah. From then till now. Um, how about you, Danny? Is it an alternate universe or is it um is it Ian just telling the story to somebody it, else? It, to me, it sounded just like stream of consciousness from, from Ian's point of view. So, mm-hmm. you know how, how sometimes you'll replay an event in your mind so yeah. many times that it kind of changes a little bit? Yeah. Kind of feels like that. So, for all we know, this is not a most accurate representation of what happened, mm-hmm. but it's just how, how, he, yeah. like how he remembers it. Yeah. Exactly. And yet, we've got that first scene... Where they meet in under completely different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that could make an argument for the alternate universe uh, theory. Because we also have a third version. Uh, and I told myself I wasn't going to bring this up, but I'm going to anyway. We have Doctor Who and the Daleks, the 1965 movie with Peter Cushing, in which he plays an Earth scientist named Doctor Who. That's actually his name. Mm. And he has two granddaughters, Susan and Barbara. And Ian is Barbara's uh, boyfriend, and he, yeah, invents the TARDIS in their backyard. Yeah. Doesn't it seem as interesting? No. 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 That, it it, it kind of was. It doesn't really. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, we'll have to show it to you. Yeah, yeah. Danny has seen it with me a couple yeah. times, but he's only seen the Rift Tracks version, because it really is a movie to be made fun of. Yeah. It's... We Absolutely have to have a movie hilarious. night for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> movie night, we're just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's really about the only way to watch yeah. that is with the Rift Tracks version. <laughs> but um, that's about the only way that one differs, too. Otherwise, the particulars of the story, once they get to Scarrow, are exactly right. <laughs> the only thing that doesn't... No, there are a couple things that don't happen. Uh, in the televised version, for instance, uh, one of the Thals falls in love with uh, Barbara. And wants her to stay behind, but she doesn't. Oh. So that was the love story, such as it was. It was very, you know, it shallow. Kind of hinted to it a little bit. Really? How? In the book, I mean, she's with that one. I, I mean, I, his name escapes me right now, but um, he, Ian's telling him like, "Oh, watch out for her! Watch out for her!" And they're always whispering to each other. Oh yeah. And Christos, um, I think. yeah, yeah, Big that's guy. his name. Um. And they're always whispering to each other, and he's helping her over, and he said that he would stay with her until, you know, yeah. until if if he had to die and yeah. stuff like that. So that kind of made me think, like, maybe he has a crush on her, but then in the book he says that he's going to ask another woman to be his, you know, forever partner. Mm-hmm. So then it kind of just, like, nixes the whole thing, which is good. Which is weird, because uh, it turns out it's a different fall. That has the crush on her in the televised version. Is it? Yeah. It's one of those on that uh, mission. And the one that dies? Uh, no, it's not. Mm. He he dies the same way. Uh, whatever it is in the lake gets him. Okay. But it's... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. And I'm, I but they're I hard names to remember. They really yeah. are. They're like such... I mean... And you'd think that after all these years I'd be able to remember it, but no. Antidus, Genetus, Aladon, it's one of those. I don't remember. There's a bunch of A names. Yeah, yeah. they really are. <laughs> yeah. And they're all physically perfect, don't so she could have. Yeah, oh no, no, please. <laughs> yes, listeners at home, please forgive us. I know you just read this book and it's fresh in your mind, but we actually all read this, well, except for Danny, uh, weeks ago. So there we are, but that's fine. The interesting thing is the actor who plays Ian actually does the uh, audiobook recording. 
So you get a first person from the guy who actually That's did it. Cool. Yeah, it really is. I thought about doing the audiobook just by itself, but yeah. This meeting, we already talked about how you prefer the Unearthly Child version of it. Um, are there, is there anything that works better in this version? The, the big, like how they meet? How they all meet. Um, I think, in a, in a sense, the car crash part is kind of like an exciting way to get into it mm-hmm. because... A, they don't know each other. B, they just went through this... Well, he didn't go through anything. He just walked into it. This, like, devastating thing that just happened, and he's helping her and being very courageous. Right. And then he just gets lobbed into this world of Doctor Who-ness and mm-hmm. artists. And, 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 and that was really that was really cool. The only thing I didn't... That I liked more about the other version was that they had known each other right. already. Mm-hmm. But, then again, it's better for the love story that they didn't. So, yeah. I like both versions separately, mm-hmm. and I'm glad they were different. Yeah, that and for readers in 1964 who probably didn't remember the original story yeah. and were never going to read that novelization. They would have been totally confused. Yeah, exactly. They would have been like, did I did I not think there was a car crash? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, were they were teachers? You know, like, that would have been confusing. Well, that's kind of what happened to me as a kid, because mm-hmm. I read this one first. And then when I read An Earthly Child, I was like, wait a minute, how can that be the first story? Because yeah. Ian and Barbara already met him, and it had to be explained to me later by an older and wiser fan. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I like, could see how that would be totally... Yeah. And yeah you would think you were, like, totally didn't comprehend what you were <laughs> Exactly. You know? And I wish I could say it's the only time it happens in the range, but it happens again later. There's a book later on where uh, Joe Grant, you remember that character from the Third Doctor's era, she's introduced twice. And she's introduced twice because they decide to do a later story in her run as the first novelization. And it reads beautifully, but if you've watched the show, you're like, wait a minute, we know Joe already. How do, why is this news to her? But it works really well. How about with you? Well, I, I prefer the, 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 first, the first meeting from the first book, just, just because, you know, there is that sense of familiarity. Mm-hmm. With this one, I had a problem with, I think he does a very good job of, of uh, expressing you know, the confusion from everyone's point of view that there's all this fog, there's just been a car accident, and, you know, everything's kind of up in the air. I just, I, I'm very confused by the circumstances surrounding everything, why why they were there, why the TARDIS was there, why anything. None yeah. of that ever gets explained, and so, no, so that, that kind of stuck with me going further into the book, like, why were they doing that, like? I felt the same way. Yeah, I got that too. It kind of was like, I kind of wanted more from the story. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. At least in the first one, you know, it was explained that they were there and they were just like learning more about the time and stuff like that, which is probably what they were doing, but the other one had more explanation to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though it was just their curiosity about Susan, but yeah. at least that's an immediate motivation. Exactly. Whereas, you're right. In fact, it's kind of weird there's a lot of mystery, in fact, I have it in my notes here, there's a lot of mystery in that first chapter surrounding how much Barbara knows about the Su- about Susan and the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Because she talks about the Doctor as if, oh, yeah, him. And you already feel like there's tension between the two of them before you even start anything else. And it never gets resolved. It does make for some great tension among yeah. the four of them. And I think that's maybe why it's there. The Doctor's also a lot nicer oh, in really? this version, I think. You think the lab. So? Yeah, I think so. I thought it was more medicine. Did you? I thought, like, to me, it was like in the first version, 
he was like, get him out of here, and we're just going to, you know, like, he, I thought the second time that they went on their mission, I mean, he kind of said, like, you're coming with me, and, right. you know, like, there's no other out, mm-hmm. but he was a lot more, I thought he was a lot more pleasant about it, in a sense, okay. because he was like, okay, well, this is your life now, so hopefully maybe we'll call back to your time, but, you know, get used to it. Yeah. And he was a lot more, like, character-wise towards the other characters, like Ian and Barbara. He was a lot more, um, he thought more of them, I thought, mm-hmm. in this version. You know? like see that. He would, like, wink at them or say, good job, or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So he didn't, he kind of seemed like less of a, like, a jerk in this one to me. Okay. Even though he had his menacing ways, like, obviously, but, right. I mean, that, that just seems to be his character. Maybe it's because of the way he's acting when they first meet him in the fog that I'm thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree because it, it, like, during the the second half of the book, he's much more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, it's like, well, this is my ship and you're just following me now and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's one point when Ian, um, he says something about the, the crash and Ian says uh, the doctor clicked his tongue and he describes it as the most insincere sound I've ever heard in my life. That's like, yeah, that sounds very much like a menacing yeah. doctor. But uh, he, he came off very much as a pirate. In what sense? Like, I've taken you from your ship. You're part of my crew. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I yeah. could definitely see that. And it's weird, in fact, it's in my notes too, weird how the Doctor's menace almost immediately turns to resignation when he realizes he has to take them along. Yes. Because he says, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to take you with me. There's no way around this. And his interactions with Susan at that point are downright sweet. Because at some point he says, well, you know, you could have stayed at Miss Wright's apartment and I would have been fine. You know I wouldn't have worried about you. And Susan says, but I would have worried about you. And you're like, yeah. aw. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get anything like that in a no. child. And to jump ahead just a bit, to, to continue my, my point about him being, you know, a menacing figure, mm-hmm. being a bit like a pirate, he loses the that fluid, the fluid link, the fluid link yeah, the on purpose so that they have to... So you do can the explore the planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that happens in both versions. but And it happens in the Cushing version, too. But when Cushing does it, it's like, oh, I have to admit I did this. But the Hartnell version, when he does it, it's like, I wanted to do this, damn it. And you're yeah. going to come with yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And admittedly, that's probably the closest thing in this story that the Doctor does to almost killing the caveman in the first story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except this one's more dangerous because it almost kills all of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because they have no way of knowing that. Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, the last novelization, we knew that it was radiation. In the televised version, it's radiation. Here, it's air pollution. Mm-hmm. Right. Why do you think Whitaker changed that? Because of the because of the the times. Didn't they just come out of? I don't know when was, when this was published, but wasn't this, wasn't this like the first right generation? The yeah. Mm-hmm. So Maybe. there's all these concerns about like, fallout yeah. and stuff like that. I yeah. would think. I, I personally think it might be that uh, David Whitaker was like, well, when he script edited the original um, scripts, he thought, well, I'm at a time crunch, I'm going to leave this in here. And then probably someone said to him, you know, radiation poisoning isn't that easily cured. Yeah, especially yeah. since the 
the tribe has a whole pill and they're just people living off the land. So yeah. it would have to be something that wasn't chemical because how would they make something out of nothing? Yeah. That was what I didn't understand about that. I was like, okay, so mm. they have these pills that's yeah. not the air pollution, but where is it from? Because there's nothing on the planet. Yeah. That's, that's where did they get them from? Yeah, that was that was that was confusing. That was confusing. It's like, did they are they the survivors of a civilization that was there before? They and, were because they said they were on top of a mountain and their range was like the rate the explosion had blasted and they were safe because there was like a mountain range that right. had blocked them right just like the daleks but it also drifted over so they mutated yes. into perfection which yeah. is another weird thing yeah. about the story <laughs> so <laughs> yeah evolution just goes down a blind alley yeah. in the story but but did they have that medicine before and now well, they still yeah, have it or that. or do they know how to synthesize more and that's a or weird thing. it couldn't be from before because they described well, this war as having happened thousands of years ago yeah. and how yeah. would they know yeah but if it's something that's a current environmental issue now they would have a definite cure for it whereas radiation poisoning that's not as easy to yeah. treat you don't right. do it with just a you know drink a vial and then you're done like they do in the televised version i think that might be the reason why they did it I do want to talk about the writing a little bit, especially at the beginning of chapter two. I just want to read this section because it is beautiful. Everything about this book is beautiful. No spoilers or anything, but I I love this book to pieces. Um, I was standing in a cylinder of metal and it was so hot I could feel the sweat dripping off my forehead and running down my face. It was absolutely black, but somewhere above me a circular metal door was being opened. I saw a tiny pinpoint of light and the vague shape of a person climbing down towards me. Somehow or other I knew the person was nervous. Don't drop the light, I shouted. Whatever you do, don't let go of it. I saw the light slip out of the person's hand and it plunged towards me. It got larger and larger until it filled the whole of the cylinder above me. It was a blinding light that hurt the back of my eyes, and I knew it was going to smash into my skull. I woke up, and the light was the soft light of a room. It's Ian coming to consciousness. That's like, God. What a way to describe that. Yes. Yeah, that was a lot of the book, too, is like the the descriptions of things were so, like, I'm not going to say drawn out because that sounds horrible, but... um, (laughs) They were much more in-depth. They were much more in-depth, but, like incredibly in-depth that you were like, well, where am I going with this? And then you're like, oh, okay, it's just him waking up. Yeah. Wait a minute. I, I, for some reason, I read that as him being inside of a Dalek suit. No, but it is a good foreshadowing. Yeah, that, yeah. It wow. could be read as that. Yeah, that's something else, too. Whitaker's doing some foreshadowing mm. in this book, and it's kind of like, whoa, Terrence Dix doesn't do that sort Mm-mm. of thing. Mm-mm. And this is the first one. This is 1964. So this should have been the gold standard by which all of those other novelizations should have been written. And yet, uh, in later episodes, listeners, we will talk about what happens to the range and why it happens. But by the time you get to the mid-70s, late-70s, the novelizations are kind of like, this happened on the script, in the script, this happens on the page. Oh. Not much mm. variation, which is unfortunate. I would much rather have novelizations like this than have writing like this, because it's just beautiful. Um, this TARDIS has a lot more bells and whistles than we're used to. Yes. Um, what did you think of the description of the inside of the TARDIS that Whitaker gives us? I thought it sounded, I thought it was like totally space age, you know, for the time. I mean, I myself pictured like this, like 1960s, like, you know, but like 
there's a hair cutting machine that you put on your head and it shaves you and it cuts your hair. You know, it's like it had all the bells and whistles to me of like 1960s like technology, mm-hmm. but like way better than I thought than in the first book because in the first book you're thinking they're just like in a tin can like driving around <laughs> nothing works right. and this has more of like oh it has two bedroom three bedrooms two bathrooms um a place to eat there's a machine that makes your food for you and he has all these different kinds of foods from different planets he's been right. to which was really cool um so yeah i, I enjoyed reading the um the description of the of the TARDIS a yeah. lot more for sure because I was like, oh, well, this seems like you could totally live there, you exactly. know. Exactly, and that was so. something I was really excited by as a kid because I hadn't seen the Hartnell TARDIS and I thought, oh, it must be so much more awesome than the one we have now. No, no, you got the Ormolu clock and that's it. You do see the food machine. Mm-hmm. You do see the beds. In fact, Danny has seen the beds. They are the most uncomfortable looking beds that have ever been seen on the television program. They just do not look like they're fun to, to sleep in. But that uh, haircutting machine is not there. Mm. Did anyone think it was weird that the doctor was kind of standing around while Ian was having his shower and telling him how it worked? It was a massage, an oil massage. <laughs> <laughs> because he described him as being right there and yeah. explaining how it's working. It's I mean, like... I thought it was kind of weird, but Ian obviously didn't because he didn't give him any suggestion to it. So, hey, I hope to God there yeah. was an actual enclosure or I would something. have loved one of those oil washers myself <laughs> that massages you as you, take, yeah. as you bathe. But so. you don't want William Hartnell standing there and saying, how do you, how are you enjoy the like shower? It? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of weird. I did do some calculation on how much Barbara was getting uh, for tutoring st- Susan as a student. Was it 20, 20 pounds? 20 pounds a week. week. Which is the equivalent in 2017 dollars of $500. She's getting $500 per week. And that's why he was like, oh, so now I know why you were tutoring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, no. no that, that's why we would do it. And I hear a dog under the table. That's what that is, listeners. It's not the Daleks. It's a dog under that's the table. That's the Daleks. <laughs> the doggy Daleks. And I love the fact that the decimal system thing doesn't show up at all, but somehow Susan's list of errors is so much more hilarious. What was it that she thought that Paris was in Spain or something? Yeah, she thought she didn't know where Japan was or something. Japan was part of Scotland. Yeah, Yeah, that was it. it. (laughs) Though though I I did notice that someone said something about Columbus theorized that the earth was round and mm-hmm. that's that's why he set sail around the world mm-hmm. did but, the doctor say something about meeting columbus in a sense in like this one yeah he said something to the effect of he wishes he could have saw him Ooh. with his mission or something like that he like well have. that to me i mean what i got from that was that he had met columbus at some point in time mm-hmm. or something I, I don't remember exactly where... It was in the beginning of the book, but hmm. he... It led to the... It, in my mind, that's what I got from it, was that if only I'd seen what he had seen with the New World or something like that. Right. And I was like, so did he meet Christopher Columbus? And then I kind of just let it go because there was more stuff going on. But. Yeah. There's a lot more stuff going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. So, but yeah, like, that's... Little things like that to me, I was like trying to, you know... Which was good about the book, too, is that... It's like little stuff like that, like makes you think, like out after the fact. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, Which a lot, lot of books more. don't do. No, and a lot of Doctor Who books do not do. There's a lot more details in here. In fact, I'm still trying to find that one because it's uh, 
there's a lot of little stuff like that. I mean, just for instance, the uh, differences between the televised version and the print version, that she's called Susan English rather than Susan Foreman. And that makes sense, because, of course, they don't go to the junkyard. And it's the Foreman junkyard. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense perfectly. I love the fact that there is some difference in their character. Barbara's a bit more of a snarker in this version. She's a strong character in Dick's book, but he doesn't seem to like her nearly as much as Whitaker does. And I think that's because Whitaker actually knew the actress. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of it right there. He describes her much more much more um, kind to her. Let's well, he doesn't that. make Barbara look like a... Um, like in the other one, Barbara's just some chick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, she's just another woman, mm-hmm. kind of, it seemed. And, he and in say... this one, it doesn't seem like that. Like, she has... Like resonance in the story, and she has a lot more character. I think, like, mm-hmm. to me, even though it's from another view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she not only has a lot more to do, but she's also treated much more kindly than Dix does by saying she'd be prettier if she smiled. Yeah, that's so the much. worst thing I could consider. Yeah, like we it's said last time, absolutely <laughs> awful. It's interesting that he's able to pull off the story and still keep the point of view limited because there are some significant things that happen in the story, the televised version, that do not happen when Ian's there to see them. One of them is Susan's trip back to the TARDIS to get the drugs. Right. Yeah, because that seems like it's really well described, even though you've got Susan and Barbara gushing about Aladon being this perfect man that the most perfect man that Susan's ever seen. Well, let me ask you, in in general, what other what other scenes, what other chapters, what other things um, stuck out to you? And we will get to the Daleks by themselves here in a second. I had a, a weird question about uh, one of the scenes where they're in a, an elevator, a lift. Yes. Uh, where the Doctor smashes, he smashes open the little control panel with a heel. And then from out of his coat pocket, he pulls out a button hook. (laughs) And that just struck me as the weirdest thing ever, because it's like, why would you have a button hook with you? Because he's an Edwardian gentleman, and he has one in his coat. I guess so. I mean, does he? Does, <laughs> if anyone's gonna have a button hook, it's gonna be the doctor. I mean, does he have? Does he have like mallet space where he just carries like a, a whole bunch of random things like this? Interesting. You should say that because in the new series, he does. It's almost, it's almost established that the doctor's pockets are bigger on the inside. Like they, like they're oh. never like a Hermione. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And and then is this before he has a sonic screwdriver? Long before. Okay. Yeah. Sonic Screwdriver isn't introduced until Fury from the Deep, which is a Patrick Troughton story. Okay. But, yeah, so we're at least a good three years away from the Sonic Screwdriver. So so does the Sonic Screwdriver kind of replace odd little things like button hooks for, for the Doctor to use in, in tight situations? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm certain of it. Uh, in fact, there are very few Doctors that don't use the Sonic Screwdriver, Pat, uh, Peter Davison being one of them, mm-hmm. and he ends up... He wanted to use like a piece of string, but he wanted to use it in various different ways in each episode, and the producers thought it was too gimmicky, and it's like, oh, and the Sonic Screwdriver isn't? Yeah. 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 But, yeah, the button hook, even I was like, uh-huh. why does he have that? Well, that makes sense. 
Oh, I mm-hmm. found that part. Oh, did you? Okay. Yes. It's I. How can you accept any of it? Time and space traveling. People from another world. It is all absolute nonsense. The doctor gave a short, harsh little laugh and laughed, and walked up to me and tapped me on the chest with his forefinger. I imagine this is the treatment Columbus received when he propounded his theory of your planet being circular. For a space tra- for a space traveler, you seem remarkably well informed about the history of Earth. I have read a little, he admitted, but I much prefer to experience history. The youngest, younger Columbus was a man of such obvious promise that I will always regretted leaving him before he made his theories known. Oh, okay. So I that, that means that he met him. <laughs> he met him. At some point in time. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, um, I think that's the only time we ever hear about Columbus. And that's what threw me for a loop right there. <laughs> so sorry to get off the subject, <laughs> no, 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 but no, I found fine. it. So I was like, I knew. Now that's it, pretty striking. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and that stuck out to me for some reason. Because I was like, okay, well, he's been all sorts of, yeah. you know, he's been all over the earth in different times. So, and, and for someone who has never read the books, mm-hmm. it's like, will this happen again? Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? he makes references uh, in the early stories to he and Susan having gone to different places, but there's always a sense they haven't had the TARDIS for all that long. Yeah. That being said, they're older than we are, and their lifespans are longer, so it could be that for them, not a long time is 100 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, they've done some traveling before this. In fact, I think in that first book, there's a reference to the French Revolution, Mm-hmm. And she says it isn't right, the book that she reads about it, because they've obviously been there. Mm-hmm. Except there's going to be an episode in about four or five episodes where they do go to the time of the French Revolution. So it's like they obviously have not been yeah. there, you know, much, but yeah. What else uh, stands out to you? What other things stood out about the book to you, or about the story, or things that didn't make sense? Or um, I have one. Mm-hmm. So the Daleks come up with some, with some, you know, they want to trick the Thals into taking the food and then poisoning them or, you know, whatever, so that they're the only species on the planet. How are they able, so they, they tell the Thals, come pick up your food at sunrise. Mm-hmm. How was the doctor and, the, and his party able to tell what the time was? On the planet? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, how do their sense. watches work? There's or... actually a lot of them. how do they speak that. English, really? Oh, uh, well, that's the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. Well, the TARDIS helps yeah. them. Um, but as far as the time, yeah, I wonder that, too, because I think Susan actually says something like, it's, eight, it's almost it's 8 six o'clock. o'clock. It's 6 o'clock. It's yeah. like, how do you know this? It's like, does the planet have a sun? Like, I know. I mean, I know it's bright all day and there's night, but well, I guess... We could say that it's her her innate sense as a Gallifreyan and a time yeah. lady. They just sense time, but this is 1964. Yeah. It could just be Whitaker's like, we need to get on with the story. Let's yeah. wrap this up. Let's <laughs> exactly. go. Yeah. There's going to be far, far worse stuff coming up in later stories, that's for sure. Was there anything else like that that you can think of? I, I Not knowing the, the show as well as you do, I, I didn't notice you know the inconsistencies, but... I did notice a consistency in that this story has... It kind of refers to the, the, the Power of the Daleks series where yes. they're talking about how they run off of static electricity and yeah. and they're, you know, they kind of need that to wake themselves up from, from whatever hibernation they were in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if... is So is this story an origin story for the Daleks or... 
Kind of, sort of. Because I, I thought there was some sort of... The actual origin story is the 1975 story Genesis of the Daleks. The one with... Uh, Davros. Davros, yes. But that's going to retcon. It's going to retroactively change the continuity so that this version of the Daleks doesn't really exist anymore. So there's no static electricity? Not anymore, no. Yeah. God, because it's silly. And for one thing... Caused by does... water propulsion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. It doesn't work. Yeah, that's... A, I mean... But the doctor does say in there, he does say, it's not our planet. We don't know the rules. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a good... And that yeah, was that's a good like hand wave. <laughs> <laughs> so like, don't that listen quickly. to this, because the doctor said so. Which just drives me crazy. In fact, I say this in the uh, Marco Polo podcast that will be coming out in a few weeks, that... Uh, the the remit of the series originally was to be a kid series and to be an educational kid series so they would all they would alternate historical stories with scientifically based ones mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is the scientifically based one and they have these creatures running using static electricity which doesn't power shit yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. i mean unless their static electricity is like immense mm-hmm but then, wouldn't their hair all be standing yes, up? Yes, <laughs> Well, they don't have any hair. The Daleks don't have any hair. They're no. just little slimy creatures. No, but didn't he, did, at the end, near the end of the story, when, when he's examining the, the Dalek that's in the, the glass casing, does he say something about, like, oh, there was a wire tied directly to his leg, which yes. helps regulate his heart Heartbeat. or something like that? Yeah. So it, and that's even weirder, because it makes it sound... Later stories will establish those Dalek casings as travel machines for the mutant inside. Mm-hmm. Our own little mutant. <laughs> yes. This one, however, makes it sound like the Daleks themselves can't survive without, without the machine. Yeah. yeah. Well, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Because if it gets turned off, then it's... <laughs> Let's pause for a second. <laughs> Shut up, honey. <laughs> You were so good last time. <laughs> Quiet. No one wants to play with you. Sorry. That's no. That's fine. <laughs> now you were saying about the. Machine. I was saying, um, in the. I mean, obviously, I mean, we're fast forwarding, but in in the end of the story, if the static electricity ends, they die. Yeah. Because yeah. their machines are off. Yes. So and which is just strange. It sounds like the casings are are life support. Yeah. As well as well a because machine. they can't breathe the air that they're putting out. Right, but that that also falls in line with with the fact that um, the Thals had some sort of machine uh, that would create heat and light. Was yes. it? Yeah. Uh-huh. But but then he said, one of the Thals said something about like, well, it doesn't need any maintenance for at least four to five years because uh-huh. it its own batteries regenerate off of the heat and light that it produces by itself, yeah. which is, which is, you know, not how it actually works. No. You know, if, if, well, like nothing per- actually works like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Nothing that would be like a perpetual like motion that. machine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's, but if the, if the Thals had that sort of technology, just think if the Daleks had been willing to coexist with that's them. That's what I'm saying. It's like the pills, the yeah. machines that work for five years without being, yeah. and they're living out in a, barren forest with no food but they have machines so yeah right exactly yeah yeah it seems like the thals are really kind of better off than the daleks are except for the fact that they're running out of food yeah that's the whole point of coming back right yeah it, yeah that's the problem with any terry nation script 
that if you examine it too closely, yeah. it starts you falling apart. You see too apart. many flaws. Yeah. yeah. Just in, like, the sense that even the Thals, they didn't want to fight because they'd already seen war. But, like, like you said earlier, they saw war a thousand years ago. Yeah. So, how do you remember war after a thousand <laughs> years ago? I mean, living in our world now, mm-hmm. even though we've never had a total fallout of our whole planet, um, we still continue to do... You know, to war with each other and what? not think twice about it. They do have those historical records. That are in a canister? Yeah, in the canister, <laughs> and yeah. And that's how it gets him to, oh. to like be like, how about if I take that canister? Well, then I would just give it to you. It's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> but then you take his lady and he gets like totally pissed off about it. Well, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's that's, like, that's our lady, history. Uh, my lady. Stay away. Yeah, it seems like that's never been the case ever in their history yeah. that no one's tried to steal away somebody's girlfriend. Yeah. Well, they're only dealing with each other, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess if, if these thals, they're all equally beautiful, it doesn't matter who hooks up with whom. Yeah. Some are a bit taller or blonder. Right? Yes, especially that one guy, the, the giant, who gets a lot more play in the book than he does on TV. It's really interesting. And that boxing match, that doesn't happen in the televised version either. Where you would they basically, think it would. Yeah, you'd think so, but it's this nice little moment where they're like, oh, you, you hit me, therefore you win. I concede to you. And it's like, this is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Even the doctor thinks it's hilarious at that point. We have been hemming and hawing. We need to talk about the creatures that are actually on the cover of the book. Because, yes, the Daleks. Let's just talk about them okay <laughs> what did i already call them they're not jerks, jerks. Oh, they're, jerks. <laughs> they're jerks they're jerks so uncool <laughs> this is your first time seeing daleks right? no i've seen, seen um them? actually i've watched newer doctor who mm-hmm. with the newest um doctor oh, okay um so i've watched not a ton i mean i've watched maybe a season mm-hmm. so you've seen um, so i've seen become. daleks yeah mm-hmm. um i think now they look different on the inside if I'm not mistaken. Well, they, they don't really it show again. them, but they changed. Like, from, from what I read in there, it was totally different than what I can remember from the newer episodes. So, yeah. Um, Apparently, a human can fit in the casing. Yeah. Maybe they evolved. <laughs> exactly. From their slime <laughs> formation. I don't to put a person in yeah, there sometime. They, they, maybe they'll evolve into beautiful, blonde, tall people soon enough. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, they're, they're jerks. What did they you can't think of just them coexist. compared to what you've seen of them later on? These ones are a lot more... I mean, they're they're the same in the fact that they're like, go and kill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they don't care. But, like, I don't understand why they wouldn't at least, like, see what was going on with the Falls and mm-hmm. then kill them. They would have had a lot better chance, I think. Yeah, I would think so. Even though they're not obviously all dead because... Mm-hmm. I mean, this goes they come on. Back. Yeah, <laughs> this, exactly. goes, this goes on. I mean, in fact, it's really weird. Um, it's been debated for decades where in Dalek continuity the story is. Mm-hmm. Is it in the far past? Is it in the far future? Is this the Daleks as they are in decline? Is it at the very beginning? And it's just like wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. There's no way to tell. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It, it 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 was weird for me because. Having watched the show, I thought a Dalek always just kind of looked like an undercooked egg with tentacles, like some sort of weird, yeah, like, like green, little, like, jelly, yeah. like disgusting thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas <clears throat> this kind of made it seem like it was some sort of like half formed human, human thing, thing covered yes. in slime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So it was it was weird. And that's exactly how they're depicted, especially in the. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll talk about the Japanese novelization. Because the artwork in that novelization does show it like a miniature human. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. Especially the glass doll. Because yeah. they like look like, to me, like in the t- newer TV show, they look like Krang from like, um, yeah. oh, from yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Sort yeah. Of. yeah, I think they probably stole that idea yeah. from the Daleks. Yeah. Because, yeah, I'm sure they Krang did. Because is... I mean, he lives inside of a robot body. Yeah, I think yeah. that must be the case. Yeah. Speaking of that glass Dalek, um, back when I was a teenager actually preteen, I wrote a letter to Doctor Who magazine that had a list of questions, mm-hmm. and one of them was, does the glass Dalek actually appear in the televised version of the show? And they published it, and I was like, oh my god, that's <laughs> And they said, no, it doesn't. It was purely an invention of David Whitaker. Why do you think he may have come up with that character? Because I think, probably because, I mean, there there is obviously a leader in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has to be different in some way than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, if he's the leader, he doesn't have to move around. Mm-hmm. So he could just live inside of a encased glass bubble and get all the things he needs, and everyone goes out and uses their little suckers and pushers to do what he wants. Right. So it's kind of like a kingly thing, like a throne. Okay. Except the metal, I mean... Most thrones are made out of metal. This would be like the anti-throne, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if you're a little blob of goo, it doesn't yeah. matter how I mean, because I mean, all of your people who are under you are in metal. So for you to be different, you'd have to be not in metal. <laughs> as soon you know? as you keep saying in metal, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking, too. That's what I was thinking, too. But yeah, that's what I thought. I was just like, okay, well, you know, they're all enca- encased in in something that, you know, protects them and... It's it's functional, and since he's not in anything that's incredibly functional, yeah, that makes him more of a leader. Yeah, and I'm wondering if David Whitaker was doing a test run because in a later story that he writes for the show called uh, Evil of the Daleks, he creates the Emperor Dalek, and the Emperor Dalek is indeed an immobile Dalek on a dais, and it's a beautiful beautiful bit of design i'll post it on the facebook page and in fact come to think of it if you do a search on your phone mm-hmm. for um emperor dalek and evil of the daleks then you'll see what it looks like it, it's just beautiful it, it the the whole thing kind of reminds me of like bees mm. you know having they, a queen having a queen and you know ev- the entire population kind of does her bidding and takes mm. care of her and cleans her and all that it, Maybe that's the kind, kind of the same reason why that it's a glass casing. Like he doesn't need that protection. He has his drones to protect him. That's an idea. Yeah, and it's interesting that Terry Nation doesn't think much of the idea of hierarchy until you get to the second story, Dalek Invasion of Earth, and suddenly you have the Black Dalek, mm. which isn't a totally Black Dalek, but it's he's the leader Dalek, and then later we get mentions of the supreme dalek that's the one from the new series oh, but you can yeah, see that's... he's also immobile yeah whereas the one from the uh from evil of the daleks evil of the daleks uh-huh is just a beautiful bit of design and i think that's what exactly this glass dalek is supposed to be because we don't get a glass dalek in the show the actual show there it is, oh, there it is. until 1985 that thing is beautiful yeah I love that doll. It's like so space agey. Yeah, it really is. And all of those lights light up. Except that story doesn't exist anymore, so. <sighs> it's such a shame. 
<laughs> it's like what you think of sci-fi when you think of sci-fi. Yeah. Like old sci-fi. It's very 60s. Yeah. Extremely 60s. One of the criticisms leveled at this book, and by extension the original story, is that there aren't nearly enough Daleks in it. In fact, probably some of you listeners out there will probably think that about this episode of the podcast. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about the Daleks. Is that Do you a fair mean criticism? like they're not like given names? Well, because that they're I not mean... central. They're not oh. always in, always yeah, there. Yeah, they're they're kind of just like this threat looming on the horizon. We mm-hmm. we don't we don't get to see them yeah. that much. We we see them when, when they're in the prison. Mm-hmm. We see them when they're searching their their uh, their complex or whatever. Even then, it's kind of like oh, they're in the elevators. They're moving somewhere Is that else, chasing because them. Because that's under Ian's point of view, though. Maybe partially. I mean... Partially, though, every every scene that the Daleks are in, Ian's basically in, except for scenes with the Doctor and Susan yeah. being taken prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from that, though, and there are lots, actually come to think of it, that may be it, there are lots of scenes in the original televised version where you see the Daleks talking with the, amongst themselves mm-hmm. about what's going on. Yeah. So maybe that's it. I mean, typically even in, like, I mean, the episodes that I've seen, it's like, they're the threat. But they're not always the immediate threat. They're always just there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they're always around the corner. Or one's coming behind you. Or, right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not always that they're you're in personal contact, because typically you'd be killed. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the Daleks in the story aren't nearly as menacing as later. Yeah, mm-hmm. because they don't potentially hurt anybody mm-hmm. at all. Even if they were like, oh, well, we're going to see if you can get this medicine. Right. And then if you go get this medicine and mm-hmm. then it, like, cures us then we might let you go. Like, Except that's, probably won't. Yeah, which we say won't. <laughs> yeah, but right. it's like, to me, that was like, okay, well, um, these dogs seem a lot nicer than the ones that <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just from what I've seen or whatever. But, um, I mean, you know that they never let them go. No. Yeah, but and then they also have that, that uh, when they first encounter the Doctor and, and his group, they somehow stun Ian's legs or yes that's yeah. something I've never seen the Daleks do like they would it, it to me it seems like they'd rather just kill someone yeah. outright mm-hmm. yeah that's what I yeah that's what yeah. I they just like set their guns to stun or something yeah. like that yeah which they don't have later on yeah. and in fact I had a note somewhere that it takes a long time for them to even say the word extermination and they don't use it the way they use it later on, which is their go-to word for killing people. They instead mean it in terms of we need to destroy everybody else on the planet like you would a, a rodent or an yeah. insect. That's why, in a sense, that, to me, if you were to gauge where it was in the timeline of the Daleks, it would probably be, be at the beginning, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I would think because, so. Because, I mean, if they started out... Um, first stunning people, and then they all got killed. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like, next time, we're not going to be as, um, right. you know, willing to give anybody any sort of leniency. Which is strange, because Hartnell has a, st- has a line in Dalek Invasion of Earth where he says, oh, that was in the far future. These Daleks are from the past, and yet they can move around on their own because they've got a little um, yeah. satellite dish on their backs. Yeah. <laughs> and then later stories say, oh, they move telekinetically. It's like, they have a motor. Mm. They have a motor. That's what they do. And solar panels and all this sh- stuff. But yeah, it does feel... It, that's why it's so hard to place yeah. the story and where it goes. Oh, I, I did remember that there was an inconsistency. There are a couple ones, in fact, in Chapter 8. About... Uh, one line says that the, Dal- the glass Dalek jumps to its feet. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how? Does it have feet? Also, if its casing is transparent, it has a gun, and it uses its gun to menace them. Does that mean it's like Wonder Woman's invisible plane? That the gun is invisible yeah. too. <laughs> it's this glass gun. Yeah. Seems like that would be easy enough. And in that same one, they talk about Daleks eating. It's like, what do Daleks eat? So. Souls. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else that stands out to you in the story, in this particular book as, oh wait, we need to talk about the love story. Is it a good addition or is it a distraction? Was it, was it in the, the, the TV version? Not at all. Not at all. There was that flirtation between the Thal guy and Barbara and that's it. My question would be, since, I mean, I'm still reading, is does this go on? No. Because if it doesn't go on, then it's pointless, in a sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of just, like, pomp and circumstance. It was tacked on at the last yeah. moment. And it kind of feels that way. Like, if it wasn't in the book, mm-hmm. yeah. no, I wouldn't have lost anything from the reading. Yeah, okay. me neither. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel... I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, I kind of thought that, like, okay, yeah, you can meet somebody, you get thrown into unfortunate circumstances, you're going to care about them regardless, because right. you're both on the same journey. It doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic issue or a love thing, mm-hmm. you know. That I think that's just probably, you know, for readers to go, oh, or maybe <laughs> yeah. to get like women readers to read it right. or something at the time. Possibly, yeah. I can't think of any other reason why it's there. And my memory of his second book, um, The Crusaders, I don't remember whether or not that romance is still there because it's still Ian and Barbara, and I think it's Vicky by that point, not Susan. But I don't remember it being in that book. Mm. So I'm wondering if he put it in here specifically because he wanted young female readers as well as... I can imagine that. ...little boys reading it, which is great. I mean, it would be nice if more writers thought that way, except he... Do you feel like that love story kind of brings Susan... I'm sorry, brings Barbara out of the story a little bit because she's got to play this mysterious figure who's pissed off at him for reasons... He can't figure out. I think it kind of really made no difference. Yeah. Mm, yeah. To me, I thought, like, if he... Because everything that had to do with that was like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a forethought. So, to me, if it didn't happen... I think it kind of, like, brought you out of the story, too. Like, mm. in a sense. Because, like, everything was like, oh, but is she? And then it would go on. And then he's like, well, i got to get on with this mission. Yeah. So it was like, They, they well, had what? to pause. Yeah, they had to pause it, have him think about it, stop it, mm-hmm. and then go back on to it. So yeah. it's kind of like mm-hmm. if it didn't happen, it would have been fine. Okay. I actually would have liked her to get with the... With the thaw? <laughs> yeah, with the thaw. Like, yeah. that. I would have been like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, in fact, Terry Nation feels the same way. He, uh, he kind of retells the story word for word in the... Uh, Pertwee story Planet of the Daleks, and there he has a thaw, make moves on, not make moves on, but flirt with Joe yeah. Grant. And it's like, oh, dude, you already did this story once. Yeah. Good God, do something original. But then, yeah. again, if they would have done that, the way they ended this book was like, oh, yes, let's go on with the Doctor, rather than staying on this planet. Yes. Right. So yeah. I guess you had to do it to tie it all in and yeah. just leave. Because, it feels because if like, she had any romantic involvement with anybody else, then she might have stayed. Yeah, yeah. And there is that moment of regret in the televised version where she says, look, I'm, 
I'm flattered and all, but I want to get back to my own planet in my own time. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, if you have to do it, if you have to go, you have to go. And <laughs> she goes. And that's understandable. I probably would have just stayed. Yeah. Because you know you're never going back. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's only if you know for sure that the Daleks are dead for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what I was like. Which Why did they stay know. to make sure they were all dead? Because you know they're not. And that the Thals have more to offer than just, you know... Okay. Cylinders of their history and uh, the firebox, the firebox, and whatever those. Ca- I saw oh. one of them nude. Well, well yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well then, well, then plus they have lakes full of like giant monsters and Cthulhu and <laughs> I don't know what else. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly a safe place. Scaru is not a vacation spot. That's for the damn doctor sure. was trying to definitely. Um, Get her to be like, yeah, maybe I'll stay, though, if you want. But at the end there, he was like, oh, well, you know, you can totally be, like, a good person on this planet to Ian. He was like, oh, well, they'll definitely give you a position if you stay and blah, blah, blah. That's it, then. Because the next book in the series, which is written years and years later, says something about Barbara almost being left behind on Scarrow, and we couldn't figure out what that reference was to, and hopefully somebody on our Facebook page will tell us, because it makes it sound like the doctor wanted to leave Barbara behind, it's like, no, it's just the Thal got interested in her, and she decided not to stay. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. Speaking of the end of the book, um, the, the doctor has this nice little epiphany about his lie, which doesn't happen in the televised version, and it really doesn't happen in um, An Unearthly Child, where he says something along the lines of, I can't promise either of you to return you to your planet Earth. I've said that before, and I repeat it now. The TARDIS, although excellent in many respects, does have one or two faults in it. You don't say. I can never, for example, plan a journey with any accuracy. Both of you, if I may say so, have carried yourselves very well. Intruders you started out, but it has been as friends and companions that I recognize your values. Now, outside these doors, we know there is a world and a very interesting one. The people are delightful and there's much to do. That's what you were talking about. It would be a very full life and a very satisfying one. And it doesn't sound like he's trying to get rid of them. No. He's just giving them like an out if they want it, I think. And she says, you make it sound very attractive. And he says, I mean to. For what can I offer you? Constant danger? No permanence? A life of drifting from place to place, searching perhaps for the ideal and never finding it? Mind you, if you wish to stay with us, Susan and I agree we would be glad of your company. If, on the other hand, one or both of you prefer to stay, then we shall be dreadfully sorry, finished Susan for him. And he nodded agreement with a sharp move of his head. And it's like, wow. And then there's that little callback to that somewhat sexist line, I'll let Barbara decide for both of us. Why? Because the man always asks the woman if she is willing. It's like, oh. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's better than the line in the televised version where one of the Thals says, well, we could go by one of the principles of your planet, ladies first. It's like, how do you know that? How can oh, you freaking know that? That'd it's, be so bad. Oh, it's a terrible We need to start one. doing this and then watching the episode. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, we really because should. you'd be like, oh, I'm so glad I read the book. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is terrible. On your planet, we open doors. Like, <laughs> yes. the doors? Oh, God. And that's not the worst of it. David Whitaker wrote a stage play called Curse of the Daleks in the late 60s. It, it's doctorless. 
And at one point, it's set in the 23rd century, at one point you have a male character saying to a, a female character, oh, well, back in the 20th century there were all these ideas that men and women should be equal, but we've gotten past those ideas and we realize that men are suited to certain tasks and women are suited to other ones. It's enough to make you want to hit something. <laughs> it's like, David Whitaker, God, why? Such a good writer in every other way. <laughs> I know. Any last thoughts on the book? I I really like when they were they were entering the 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 cave system trying to uh, sabotage the 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 generator and mm. all this other stuff. When I first started reading those scenes, I didn't understand what was going on, and I thought you know this this story could have really just done without them. But on thinking about them a little more, it seemed like this is their way of being persuaded. Yes, you need to fight to defend yourselves. You need to you need to be able to be prepared for the vicissitudes of life that someone will fall off a cliff, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous things are out there. You need to be you need to be prepared for this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it fits in very well. It it kind of extends Ian's sort of testing of the Thals earlier on, you know, he he, he tests them with uh, what did he do? He he tried taking one of the girls away, and then right. yeah. one of them stood up and said, "Like, don't take her." You yeah. know, yeah. It, it, it's it's and kind of to hit him, right? Fact. It's kind of an extension of that, mm-hmm. and it, it it reminds me of that one uh, episode of Next Generation where Data has to persuade an entire civilization oh, to, yeah. to move away. It, it yeah. reminded me of yeah. that, so that it, it that that all fit in very nicely. Okay. I agree with him too. I also felt that way about the part with the caves. Like I was like, oh, like it's going on too like, long. Why is this going on so long? Ooh. And then I was like, but then also too, like Danny, I'll agree in the sense that I was like, okay, well, these people have never done on these missions. They have to see death. They have to have things like this happen to them yes. to be stronger individuals, mm-hmm. not just as a group of people. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Like, the one guy's brother died right, right in front of him. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and they, they went through a lot of stuff together. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Ian, Barbara, all of them, they all stuck together, went through a bunch of stuff. So when it came down to the end, they were just like, we gotta do this. Yeah. And that's, I, and I agree with Danny in the sense that I felt exactly the same way. Like, there was parts of the book where I was like, let's go, you know, a yeah. little bit. And then I was like, and then after I read it, I was like, oh, that's why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, in a sense, books when books do that, it's really good because it has you thinking about them afterwards, which is always a good thing to me, I think. Well, just wait till you see the televised version because in that in that version, that scene goes on Forever, like I can imagine. Yes. Especially when they're jumping across the crevasse. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that and there's... And like, come on! No, I could just do it! No, yeah. I mean... When they jump across the crevasse in the televised version, you've got one Thal whose younger brother is really cowardly and is kind of scared and wants to go back. Mm-hmm. And he ends up dying. Okay. And it's kind of like, ooh, oh. cowardice is But you can't make punished. them fall cowardice. None of them were cowardice. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't make them Like, all of them were just like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. I'll jump this thing. Cool. Yeah. Whatever. They and take then... him out. Yeah. yeah, Whitaker takes him out of the book. Uh, he's in the movie version. Except in the movie version, he survives somehow. Despite his cowardice and despite, despite falling. Mm. Um, but it doesn't happen here at all. Yeah. And I think it's that's Whitaker trying to compress that section. Obviously, he didn't compress it quite enough because mm. it does still go on yeah. forever. 
I mean, like he said, though, it, it, it you felt better about it after it. Like, yeah. once you got past it, you were like, okay. Yeah, exactly. I okay. just wanted to get to the Dalek fight after that. I was like, come yeah. on, let's get to that. Let's get to this. Which luckily at least pays off. Yeah, it you pays off. quite a few things yeah. going on in there. A few things to tell you about. I did tell you that I would promise to tell you about the Japanese version of this book because it's hard to find an adaption more suited to the Japanese. For one thing, um, Sheena, if you will do a Google search for Japanese Dalek. Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting. What's in your Some browser history? Hindi Dalek. I'm going to mess up this uh, saying this. For one thing, the title of the book in Japanese is Jiku Daiketu, which is wrong, which roughly translates to Big Bloody Space Time Battle. Wow. Yeah, exactly. The Japanese versions of the titles for the other books are just as fun. For the cave monsters, they came out... <laughs> That's it. It's got a wheel. Oh. Yes. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. For the cave monsters, they changed the title to Horror Underground Monster, with exclamation marks. And the Doomsday Weapon was called Be Fearful of the Ultimate Weapon, <laughs> exclamation mark. Always with exclamation marks. And the reason why I bring that up is because that's the front cover. I kind of like that, though. Yes. It, it is pretty, except they seem to have thought, oh, wow. made the same mistake that a lot of Americans think, that the police box is actually a phone booth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not really. That's supposed to be Susan, by the way, yeah. coming out of it. Susan looks a lot hotter than I would imagine her in American. <laughs> <laughs> and those illustrations are both beautiful and bizarre, because it's clear that the artist read the translated text but never saw the show. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's uh, what's, what's that, cultural approximation? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's very much an anime he's version. culturally appropriating it, too. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I kind of love the Japanese Daleks, to be honest, but they're nothing like the real thing. They look like upside-down teacups with... with a ball underneath. Like, yes, and they look like, like a stone cu- a stone cut wheel. Yeah, in fact, if you look back at that cover again, I think there is an illustration of what the Dalek inside is supposed to look like. Uh, yeah, you can see it right there. And huh. this will be on the Facebook page, by the way, folks. In fact, I'll have internal. What is that? It looks like Darth, Darth Vader. Oh, right I there, think that's it? supposed to be the Doctor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? give him this hat and a cape he and he looks but he's like much... so little though oh no no that's because it's perspective oh okay oh. i'm like <laughs> yeah i used to own copies of all six of those books but i had to resell them because it was literally a month's rent they, oh. that's how much they cost and it was kind of like oh i can't really look at the thing. inside of them yes they do a breakdown of it there's no way ian could fit in that probably not no, no. and he can't fit in a modern dot well people fit in modern dollars well if the they if they scrunch, scrunch up, up yeah or they're itty bitty tiny like uh, jenna coleman is yeah um also i'm not sure if this is the time i'm not sure if this is the time to talk about igor and grichka bogdanov who appear on the covers of the French novelizations and on the back cover. In fact, let me give this to both of you so you can look at it. Um, I didn't bring in Unearthly Child last time, but I'll put scans of those covers. They are, and this is fascinating, I never understood why these guys were on the covers of these books Mm -hmm. until I looked them up on Wikipedia, and oh my God, these are twin brothers with degrees in physics and mathematics. Okay. 
And the Doctor Who connection comes about because they co-wrote a book on sci-fi in the 70s, and they hosted some shows on French TV about science and science fiction. But here's where it gets really weird. In 2002, they wrote a series of papers on theoretical physics, which were eventually peer-reviewed by other physicists and declared absolutely meaningless. So, they, like, they're the doctor, not who is a physicist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, not the doctor knows it's a yes. <laughs> It became such a scandal, it's known as the Bogdanoff affair. Wow. And if, it, if that weren't enough, if you do a Google search for the Bogdanoff brothers... Um, let me give you the spelling there. It's uh, Bogdanov Brothers. Um, you're going to find that they became addicted to plastic surgery. Oh, God. Yeah. They became addicted to plastic surgery. I thought you were going to say ecstatic electricity. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, they may as well have because it dis- disfigured them. They look cute enough on the back cover of this book, but by the time you get to pictures of them in the 2000s, they're terrifying. Oh, God. I notice he's he's wearing the wrong scarf. On yes. this I had it, and then I clicked the wrong one. Oh, Lord. yeah. There what you go. the? F- How bad is this? Oh, well, let's Lord. take a look. Yes, that's... they look like Muppets. Well, I think those actually are Muppets. <laughs> are, but... Is that them? No, wait. That actually is a that is a photo of them. Yes. What? <laughs> that's how much plastic surgery they've gone through. Oh, that's not even. Yeah, they have gone through so much plastic oh surgery God. that they have these huge... How'd they have money for this? I have no idea. I guess there's a lot of money to be made in presenting on French television, and uh, that's what they I looked mean, like in the better, 90s. I mean, better, but I mean... But that was before it got out of control. Oh and then God. they turned into, what's his name, from um, they Dead They look like alive. the cat lady. <laughs> yeah. 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 They would have been better off getting addicted to mercury or something. Probably so. Well, I thought I'd bring that up anyway, because oh. they're on all the French novelizations, but yeah, it's kind of yeah. terrifying. Yeah, so, terrifying. those of you who are wondering at home, that's why the Bogdanov brothers are on those French novelizations, and oh my lord. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of this book, written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book... Simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment on our Facebook page so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating there out of five stars for this book is 3.79. And here are some sample reviews. Alejandro, who gave the book three stars, writes, 50 years later, anybody knows the Daleks are pure evil. But reading the way as the group met them, it was odd how they were pretty sure they must be evil when they still hadn't done anything evil, but just controlling some unknown visitors of their city. But certainly they know how to convince anybody how evil they can be, since without spoiling the way that they deal with the original leader of the Thals, jeez. I know. He also wrote a lot more about this, especially the inconsistencies between the televised version and the print version. Also, just to show you how odd Goodreads can get sometimes. Lover. Oh yeah, another three, lover. another three-star reviewer, Manny, wrote his review in the voice of a Dalek, but it's more about current events because he added this note in November of 2016. I'm I'm gonna do the Dalek voice. I apologize <laughs> for embarrassing myself already. We are getting closer. Our candidate won the U.S. election. Soon you will all die. 
You cannot escape. Exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably my favorite review of a Doctor Who book ever. (laughs) And finally, Christian Petri writes, David Whitaker takes an episode that was padded too much into a tight story that moves along at a healthy pace. To do this, it takes a lot of liberties with the continuity of Doctor Who. Since this was the first Doctor Who book, it's no surprise a new ending uh, opening had to be created, but this allows it to open up the story. An unearthly child is dumped from having existed. This does cause a small problem with reading them in order, as we've Mm -hmm. seen. However, with Ian telling the story in the first person, it allows the characters to expand and learn with their situation, how to work together. Two details that help to flesh out the story is describing the inside of the Dalek case from how Ian sees it. He also sees Glass Dalek as the leader, which allows us to see that there is a structure to the Daleks. As the books can do, it it expands the encounter by the lake to have the giant lake monsters appear. That's right, they don't appear on screen. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, it's too hard to realize. They're they're a whirlpool, basically, in the original. One side note is that Whitaker titles a chapter of this book Power of the Daleks. Yes. Interesting as he uses it for his own Dalek story later, and he gave this five stars. So, Sheena, out of five stars, how many uh, Bogdanovs not involved? <laughs> how many stars would you give I'm this? I'm going to flip my phone because it's going to be nightmares. <laughs> um, I would give it a 4.6 because I like this story. I like the way it went. I like that it was different than the first story. Mm-hmm. The things that I did not like about it, in a sense, which I ended up liking later, was um, the fact that some parts were long-winded. There were some inconsistencies. Um, and that was pretty much why I didn't like parts of it that I didn't care for, mm-hmm. for the long-windedness, the inconsistencies, things you would just be like, eh. But then I did like it because it made you think. And we wouldn't have had these conversations if there were inconsistencies. Right. We would just be raving on and on about the book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would give it like a 4.6. Okay. All right. Danny? I give this a four and a half botched surgeries out of five. <laughs> uh, I th- I thought the the book was beautiful. I I I really enjoyed. I, I think I think the part where I started enjoying it the most is is where he starts to realize how deceptive the Doctor is, and he never explains it fully to the reader, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this is all one giant lie, or this is all one deception. Never spells it out for you, but it just comes into play, and it's like, wow, I was thinking that might be the case, and it totally was. <laughs> and you, you kind of feel involved in the, in the story. Mm-hmm. you know in, in in some way so um i liked all the characters i liked all the action it was a lot of fun yeah. okay yeah. and as for me i give it a five out of five unreservedly this is possibly if not my favorite novelization one of my favorite novelizations because whitaker does with the material the sort of thing that no other writer does, which is, it is a long-winded story. It's seven damn episodes. Mm. And one of them is just jumping a crevasse. Mm. And yet he manages to make even that seem incredible and exciting and emotionally engaging in a way that the original series um, episode doesn't. And all those bits of detail, those lovely descriptions, in fact, there was one line, and I forgot to uh, say it earlier, 
but in Chapter 4, Power of the Daleks, he not only makes reference to Frank Lloyd Wright at one point, but he also has this line, Ian says, Hope seemed a faraway thing, and life a gleaming comet in the sky that was rapidly burning itself out. You just don't get writing like that in yeah. the later mm-hmm. novelizations. And see, that I think that's why you appreciate the things a lot more than, say, me and Danny, is because you've read them in, in their entirety. So when you go back, when we go back even in time after doing these podcasts, we can be like, oh, man, we missed that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that's why I think, like, you're more privy to the fact that, like, the stories can get worse. They or, can. <laughs> they, they can and they do. <laughs> Not to spoil anything, yeah. but yeah, listeners, just wait two episodes and you'll hear my take on Marco Polo. <laughs> yeah, even my panelists were surprised by that one. But uh, yeah, the, there's just no book like this, except for The Crusades, which is also written by David Whitaker, but it's not written as first person. But it also takes a story which I personally find boring because it's historical and it makes it interesting because it's David Whitaker. He knows what he's doing. Well, thank you guys again for participating in this podcast and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time yet again. Next time, we'll be reading Doctor Who and the Edge of Destruction. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. If you add a comment on that page, if you think there's something we missed here, or you just want to tell us that you like us using your words, you'll be entered into our second Target book giveaway. This time, some lucky fan randomly picked by me will get a gently used copy of, oh, there it is, Doctor Who and the Crusaders by David Whitaker. So if you want to experience what his prose is like firsthand, you're about to get a chance to uh, see it. Check our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces, for more details. Also feel free to give us a thumbs up on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including iTunes. If you really like us, or you really, really don't like us, post your comments, suggestions, questions, or any on any or all the above platforms, or email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.